Amen. Amen. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. We thank you and praise you for the gift of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart that is here. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. We waited nine years. We can wait one more week. Amen. When I want it to be dumb, we get there. It's going to be great. God bless all you've been out there volunteering, and it has been an incredible blessing. So many faithful servants. Just, uh, I'm excited to get there, but at the same time, I want to get there when everything's done. Well, before we get into the Word this morning, we're going to do, uh, I would say, one of my favorite things, but it'll be two of my favorite things since we're doing two of them. We're going to have a couple of baby dedications. So, if Teresa would bring Calissa up first. Hi. Can you see me? No? I'm pretty nice, actually. Look out there. Look, everybody's looking at you. Oh, wait a minute. Say hi. This is Calissa Danae Razo. Okay. And her mom, Teresa. Let's pray. Let's pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we lift up little Calissa to you, Lord. We thank you and praise you for her, that she's got a mom who loves you and is raising her in a godly home. Father, we pray and just dedicate her little life to you, Lord, that she might grow up to love and serve and honor you. Lord, you knew that she was going to be born before the foundation of the world. You knit her together in her mother's womb. And Lord, you've got a plan for her life. Father, I pray that we as her church body would be not just praying for her this morning, but praying for her throughout her life. Lord, that we'd be a a source of encouragement and ministry to her and her precious little life. I lift up her mom to you, Lord, and I just pray she'd be the godly mom. Look, Calissa can look at her mom and see what a godly mom looks like, a godly example. Lord, that she can follow in her footsteps. And Lord, I just thank you again and praise you that by divine appointment, you brought this little girl into Teresa's life and that she's so precious to you. And so, Lord, we come before you humbly. We dedicate her life to you. We ask, Lord, you do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think in this precious little girl's life. May you put a hedge of thorns of protection around her. May you watch over her, Lord. May she come to know you at a young age, and may she grow to be a mighty woman of God. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, James and Vivian, come on up. With little Benji James Johnston, and yes, he's related. (laughs) This is my great nephew. He is a great nephew, so. If you don't know, James is my nephew, and uh, his wife Vivian, and this is their little boy, Benji. He looks way too cute and way too stylish right about now. Hi. Can you say hi, everybody? Say hi. You thought people were looking at you before. Look at this. Sweet boy. Well, let's pray for Benji. Let's lift him up. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this precious little boy. Thank you for the miracle that every child is and that Benji's a miracle. Lord, you are the one that, again, patterned the time and the day and the hour that he would be born. 
And Lord, to the parents that you've given him. And I thank you for, for James and Vivian. I thank you that he's got a godly mom and a godly dad, a godly example to look at. Lord, I lift out James to you, Lord. Help him to be the spiritual leader in his household, the man of God you've called him to be, a great example for his precious little boy to see what a godly man uh, he can pattern his life after. Lord, I pray for James. He'd be not only the, a good dad, but a, a godly husband. And just bless their home and bless their marriage. Lord, I lift up Vivian to you, Lord. Thank you for her. And I thank you, Lord, that just watching James grow up and wondering one day what his wife would be like, what an answer to prayer Vivian is. What a sweet and godly woman. What a precious gift they are to each other. And now, Lord, you've grown their family and blessed them as a, as a couple and brought this precious little boy. So, Father, I pray for them that you'd help give them wisdom as they raise their son. Lord, that they would make the right godly decisions, Lord, and they would be that godly example. Lord, we lift up Benji, and we do. We dedicate his little life to you this morning. Lord, we put him in your hands where he always belongs. Father, may he grow up to love and serve and honor you. We do also pray for him that you would protect him and watch over him. Keep your eyes upon him. We can't wait to see all that you're going to do in this young man's life. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you again that you've placed Benji and James and Vivian's home. We thank you that he is uh, being taught the truth from the very beginning of his life. May he grow up to love and serve and honor you. Become that mighty man of God if you should tarry. Just bless the Johnston home. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. What a good boy. God bless you, Vivian. I remember when he was dedicated. He's a little bigger now. <laughs> Amen. All right. Turn your Bibles to 2 John. Don't you love baby dedications? They rock. You know why they rock? Because it means kids are being raised in homes where they're going to be taught to fear and follow after the true and living God, and nothing's better than that. Amen? All right. Well, we finished First John on Wednesday night, so if you didn't come Wednesday night, grab the, grab the uh, CD. They're always free. I think we even have some tapes, somebody said. I know they still made those, but we do have some of those, I guess. So help yourself to that. As we come to Second John, it's still John. We saw him in First John and now it's Second John. It's still John. He's still the author. It's the same man. Uh, some time has passed by. The themes don't change a ton because what has happened is, in First John, the real focus was addressed to the children of Israel, the early church, about false teachers in their midst. When you get to Second John, he goes from addressing a large group to a much smaller one. We'll talk about the minor debate as to who this, this letter is really written to. Some believe it's to a family. Others believe to a local congregation. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. But in each case, it's gone from a you know, the letter of 1 John was ministering to a large group, to all known Christians really at the time, and now 2 John is being narrowed, but guess what? The problem can be the same. You know, John knows that these early Christians are undergoing temptation. And the temptation was to fall away from the truth and to accept the lie. And he was very repetitive in 1 John, and now we have 2 John in the Bible, and we're going to see a lot of the same things we saw in 1 John. And you might say, why is this so repetitive? Because the Bible tells us that, you know, we need to take heed lest we fall. 
You know, that the same temptation that was common to them is common to us. You might sit there and think, well, I'm not going to fall for a false teacher. Well, guys, the way that we fall for a false teacher is we cease to be Bereans who study the word of God to know what the truth really is. Because if we don't know what the truth is, if we don't spend time in the word of God, we may fall for a lie and not even know it. One of the reasons I want you to have your Bible out when I'm teaching is to make sure that I am teaching the Bible. Amen? I don't put the words up on a screen. People go, why don't you just put the words up? We don't have to have so many Bibles. Because I want you to open your Bible. And I want you to follow along in the Bible. And then I hope that you open up your Bible beside Sunday morning. Amen? And so, the, because if you don't open up on Sunday morning, chances of Tuesday afternoon, not so much. Amen? So it's important that we be in the Word of God and we follow along because the same temptation that, was, that they were susceptible to, so are we today. And that's why we have this in the canon of Scripture. The main theme verse of, we're only going to get through half of this book this week and half next week, but the main theme verse that we'll get to next week that really tells us what this book is about, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. John was the apostle of love. That's what he was known for. What's amazing about that is he didn't start off that way. James and John were known as the sons of what? Sons of thunder. You know, they were, John was, you know, calling fire down from heaven. Smoke these guys, Lord. That's John. He became the apostle of love. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life. Amen? Some of you might have been, yeah, I used to be that fiery person, and praise God that, you know, may hopefully have some more love and grace now. Also, he and his brother were among the ones arguing who would be the greatest among them. And then later, his own, their mom, and I think they must have put her up to it, went and said, hey, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, can my boys be on your right and your left-hand side? These guys are pretty arrogant and full of themselves. And now he's become the apostle of love. But at, you know what? Love and truth are not mutually exclusive. Often people think, you love, if you love people, you can you know, let the truth slide. Or if you want to tell the truth, you don't necessarily have to be loving. That's just not true. We need to be telling the truth in love. Amen? And that's exactly what we're going to see in this letter over the next two weeks. He's going to deliver the, the truth, but he's going to do it in a loving way. And he's going to be an extremely loving man, but he's not going to avoid the truth as he's pouring out love upon them. He makes it very clear that we're not to compromise the truth in the name of love. Here's what was happening in those days, and then we'll get to the text. There were many teachers who were traveling around, and in those days, these pastors, or not really pastors, more like evangelists, or just teachers, as they would travel from city to city to teach, in those days, you know, in the first century AD, those days, they didn't have, you know, the days in on the side of the road. You know, they didn't pull off on the next exit and find a place to stay. Only in the larger places did they have an inn at all. And usually, inns were not known for good things. They were filthy and dirty and, and horrible things often took place there. So most of the time when these guys would travel, they would stay and have to rest upon staying in an individual's home. And so what would happen is they would go to a new city and they would go and stay in these houses. Well, what had started to happen was these false teachers were going around from city to city. And Christians were housing these guys in the name of love. And next week we're going to see that he forbids them to do that. He says, look, you don't bring someone into your house who's teaching false doctrine. You don't, you don't care for them. You don't. Now some people have taken this and said, what about the Mormon that comes to my door? Hey, I think you ought to love them and you ought to minister to them, but I don't think you ought to do anything that helps them promote what they're trying to do. Amen? Amen? Because there's a doctrine that the enemy is using and we don't want that. We've got to love them. 
And we should love them, but that's what was happening. John's letter serves as a warning to now this smaller group as we get to the text. And it goes from being to the whole church, and now it's addressed to an elect lady. We'll talk about that in a moment. And what is he telling her? To guard herself against the false teachers, the Gnostics, and others who did not acknowledge that Jesus had come in the flesh. As Christians, we are to love those people who would come to our door, the people that we live near supernaturally, but we are to stand for the truth at the same time. It's not either or, it's both. Amen? Truth in love. And again, we need to be careful that we don't fall for it because sometimes somebody really charismatic who sounds really convincing, somebody who who may have studied their stuff and they come across you and you're not quite educated, you're not quite prepared and they kind of overwhelm you and before you know it, you could be falling for a lie. So I got to study the truth, amen? I'm going to encourage you that that needs to be our heart. Again, 1 Corinthians, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. This warning is to keep others from joining the growing numbers of those following the false teachers. Guys, to do that, we must have fellowship with God. We must have fellowship with Christians, but we must not have fellowship with those false teachers. So, come to verse 1 and title the message this morning, if you're a note taker, Standing for the Truth in Love. Standing for the Truth in Love. First, we're going to see in the first half that we're going to look at this morning, the practice, practicing the truth, walking in obedience to God's command. We'll see two main points. Truth and love abide in every believer. Actually, three points. We're to walk in truth and we're to walk in love. Again, it's not either or, it's both. So this week, we're going to talk about practicing the truth. Next week, we're going to talk about protecting the truth to watch out for the counterfeit teachers. So as we come to verse one here, just by way of timing so you understand it. This letter was written somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. Most put it around 90 AD. About 50 to 60 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So it hasn't really been that long. 50 to 60 years after Jesus had died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And already, you see, in the church, People starting to doubt and question whether Jesus Christ came in human flesh. False teachers like the Gnostics saying that he wasn't in human flesh. And people following after it in just such a short amount of time later. This chapter gives us a glimpse of what was going on in that early church. And what early Christians were having to deal with. So let's begin in verse 1. And it says there in verse 1, as we begin to look at, practicing the truth it says there the elder now in the bible when you see a you know we have the printing press and we have bibles in those days when they received a letter like this it was on a scroll and the scroll had to be unrolled from the top down so whenever someone wrote a letter the first thing he would do is sign it at the top so that he didn't have to so the person that had it didn't have to unroll the whole thing to find out who was writing. So the first thing you will most often see in a letter like this, an epistle, that's when an epistle is a letter. This letter being written is the author. And the author simply identifies himself as the elder. Now every other time John introduces himself as John the Apostle. This time he introduces himself as the elder. Now, the elder. I believe this presumes very clearly, and other uh, theologians would agree, that they knew who was writing them. When he said the elder, oh, they knew who that was. Now, the elder can have two meanings. First of all, elder 
is an accurate representation of, of John in a couple ways. Number one, at this point, he's old. And if you're his age this morning, forgive me, but he was probably around 90. If you're around 90, God bless you. And we're glad you're here. Amen? I hope I don't make it to 90, truthfully. I really don't. I think heaven's better. Amen? If God wants me here to 190, that's okay with me. But, I, you know, hey, you know, what takes me sooner, that's okay. But he was about 90, so he was elder. And when he wrote the elder, yeah, 90. Oh, well, yeah, that's the guy. The old guy. You could write the old guy, right? And everybody knew who he was. And so he wrote the letter saying the elder, but it not only spoke of his age, but it also spoke of his position. Elder, the word there, is presbuteros. And why I tell you that's where you get the word Presbyterian. But the term is used interchangeably with pastor and bishop. It speaks of one who is both spiritually mature and has been called by God to a position of spiritual authority within the church. So you've heard me say this before. Elder, bishop, pastor. All the same guy. Elder describes the man. Tells you who he is. He's spiritually mature. Bishop describes what he does. He oversees the flock. And pastor describes how he does it. With the heart of a shepherd, a servant who is willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. So elder accurately describes John both in the fact that he's an older man now. And it also describes his calling. Because he is a man who is called to be a pastor. So at the writing of this letter, again, at the youngest at the very youngest, in his early 80s, and probably as old as 90. Now, you've got to understand something. In those days, and it should be more so today, they really respected your elders. And the older you got, the more respect you got, not less. And today, you know, it tends to shift that, like, you know, sometimes people who got no business being respected get all the respect. But the reality is we should respect our elders, Amen. That's a biblical concept. And certainly back then, they were very aware of that. And especially in John's case, because you have to understand, at this point, John is the last living apostle. All the other apostles are dead. They've all been martyred. John's the last one left. John is the last, one of the last, if not the last, certainly the last apostle, that had a link to Jesus in a physical way. He had walked with Jesus for three years. He had seen him perform miracles. He had heard the words that he taught. He was a direct link between these people and the Lord himself. And so when he spoke, especially now as he's getting to be an older man, his words would carry very great weight in the minds of the people. I almost imagine him unrolling the scroll and it says, the elder. And they kind of went, ooh. Everybody get over here, the elder. You know, John wrote us a letter. What does John want to say? Especially when you realize this was written to either a household or a small congregation, a single congregation, a group of believers. So this is a man whose words would be greatly respected, received with both great reverence and great anticipation as they unrolled the scroll. And the two words that brought great weight were the words that would then follow. John being that last living connection. Now, the other apostles had died. And just real quickly, I want to say this. You know, a lot of times we think about the apostles and we think about how God used them mightily. absolutely did. And, you know, we, we also saw them before Pentecost, and they were kind of a mess, weren't they? I mean, they're really more the B apostles than the A apostles, weren't they? Maybe the D or F apostles. They were a mess. 
They were always messing up, sticking their feet in their mouth, doing stupid stuff. God, you know, the Lord's having to put people's ears back on their heads and, you know, heal people and correct them all the time. And they're trying to interrupt them and tell them what he should be doing. and things. What a mess. But you know what? It should be an encouragement to us because of the men they became after the Holy Spirit came upon them. Peter correcting Jesus one day, not long after, 3,000 souls added to the church that day. Denying the Savior three times, then confessing him three times by the shore. What happened? Holy Spirit is what happened. That's what happens to us. Now, we look at the apostles, and sometimes we're envious. And yeah, we should be. But you know what? If you're going to envy their lives, envy the whole thing. Because here's the reality. All the apostles outside of John were martyred. Now, this is according to church tradition, so I have no way of, other than James, the brother of John, who wrote this letter, we know how he died, because it says in Acts chapter 12 that Herod took a sword to him, killed him. Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified upside down. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten, stoned, and then clubbed. Andrew was crucified. He wasn't bound with nails, but he was crucified. Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down. Thomas was run through with a spear. Philip was also crucified. Matthew was run through with a spear. Thaddeus, or Jude, was crucified. And Simon was crucified. Maybe you didn't know that. And again, this is, I don't, you know, we don't have a, it's not biblical truth, but it's based on early writings of the early church. This is church tradition as to what happened to these apostles. And you might wonder, well, wait a minute, why isn't John on that list? How did he get, you know, everybody else was crucified or speared or beaten to death? How did he get away? Why is he still alive? Because God wasn't through with him. Amen? You know what happened to John? We know that a man by the name of Domitian attempted to boil John in oil. Again, according to early church history. Tried to boil him in oil, and he put him in boiling oil, and he didn't die. You know, you're indestructible until God's through with you. Amen? Now, I have no idea what the scene was like, and I don't want to make light of it, because I'm sure it was... I almost, can you imagine him like, is that all you got? You know, he's like in there, okay, what else you got? Help me out. You know, but here's the truth. He didn't, Domitian didn't know what to do with him. He's like, I boil this guy in oil, he won't die. So I'm going to put him on an island by himself, and he sent him out to the island of Patmos. Well, guess what happened there? God revealed a vision to him, and that's where we got the book of Revelation. So Domitian had no idea that when he was exiling uh, John, all he was doing was promoting the gospel. Amen? Guys, praise God that we're indestructible to God's through with us. But know that John, this, again, here's this man. And this letter may have even been written after he wrote the book of Revelation. And here he is, a man who's been boiled in oil, left for dead, a man who's seen Jesus face to face, a man who has walked with the Lord, seen the miracles, was a part of the early church exploding, and now he's writing this letter, and when the people receive it, you better believe that it's got their attention. Amen? Putting all this into context, you can read right by stuff and not understand how significant it really is. You know, guys, all things do work together for good for those who trust in God and called according to his purpose. He was boiled in oil that he might be put on an island. That wasn't for John's purpose, it was for God's purpose, amen? And too often we think all things work together for our good. Well, no, not necessarily, for his good. And that's the good that matters, amen? So here's John. Called, mature, faithful apostle, witness to the words and works of Jesus, esteemed man of God, and now he's going to tell you who the letter's written to. Here's what it says. So the elder, that's the author, to the elect lady and her children, 
Whenever you see these letters, the author is first, and most of the time, right after that, you're going to see the recipient of the letter. So he writes this letter to the elect lady. Nowhere else in Scripture do you see a recipient like this. Nowhere else in the Bible. And there's some debate as to who this elect lady is. Now, the word elect means called out or chosen. Guess who the elect are today? If you're a believer, you're of the elect. Amen? You've been born again. You're called out by God. You're set apart by God. He chose you. You're going to heaven. Now, the elect lady. So it's written to a Christian lady and her children. And some debate, is this literally a lady and her children? Or could it be that he's speaking of a local church? You know, in the Bible, we see the church being referred to often as the bride of Christ. Amen? So you see that feminine tag being placed upon the church. So it could be that he was writing to a local congregation. So the lady and her children would be the church and its members. It could be either one. And you know what? When I looked at a bunch of commentaries that are split about 50-50, but here's the reality. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The point is that this letter was written to somebody who was a believer in Christ, and this instruction was coming because there was the temptation to fall into the traps of the false leaders and the false teachers. And so this letter is written to instruct them and to encourage them. So to the elect lady and her children. What's interesting, when you get to verse 13, which we will next week, it says, the children of your elect sister greet you. How is that? That's why I personally think it's probably a church. Because the children of your elect sister greet you. It doesn't say your sister says, hey, you know, Ethel says hi. Or, you know, it says, the children of your elect sister. You go home and call your brother your elect brother? Or do you call him by name? So I personally believe it's probably a congregation. Again, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. So John writes this letter to a lady or a local church and its members. They're not mentioned by name. Now, why were they not mentioned by name? It says elder, elect lady, and members. Wouldn't it have been easier to say John and, you know, Sarah and the kids? Why did he not do that? Well, let me tell you one of the reasons I believe. This was during a time of incredible persecution. And this was, when this letter was being delivered, it absolutely could have been intercepted by somebody. And if you had the names of a Christian family or even a Christian congregation listed there, and then if you read the rest of the letter, they're a congregation being used mightily by God. And if those who are persecutors of the church got a hold of it, they might then take those names, find those people, and put them to death. I just mentioned to you all the apostles have been martyred outside of John. Shouldn't be surprising. You know, it's interesting. When I would go to India every year, they would tell us not to tell people what organization we were with, not to tell people necessarily which church we were speaking at. Not that they were afraid necessarily for our sake, but they were worried about what would happen to those people after we left. You know, a lot of times, you know, a six foot three white guy walking into an Indian village kind of stands out. People come up, touch my skin. You know, and, never, and you know, so I walk in these villages and everybody knows you've been there. And you know what, if 
If you're not careful, you can cause them a great deal of harm when you leave because the persecution could follow. John's writing this letter of the heart of an elder, a heart of a pastor, reaching out to either a family or a local church. And as he does it, his heart is to minister to them, but not to bring persecution upon them for simply his letter coming to them. Hey, if persecution comes because we stand for God, then bring it on. Amen? But we don't want to have it come because of you know, our own carelessness. So the elect lady, this particular congregation, ultimately it doesn't change. Now here's what he says to them. Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Be it a particular lady or a local church, John sends along an expression of his love for them, as well as the love of the rest of the body of Christ. These would be great words of comfort and encouragement for those enduring persecution. Imagine getting a letter from, at the time, the most well-known Christian on the planet. And you're going through persecution, and this letter comes, even especially, what if it was that to your house? And it's a lady and her kids, and the letter says, basically, paraphrase, hey, you're not alone, we love you. We're with you. We're praying for you. Sometimes as Christians, sometimes as people, we feel like we're alone going through our trials all by ourselves. And the enemy wants you to feel that way, by the way. Amen? Christians, you should never isolate yourself. If you're going through a tough time, you know what? Be transparent enough to share it with others that we might pray for you. Because we love you. Amen? That's how the body of Christ should function. Notice again, though, the emphasis. It says, whom I love in truth. Notice, love and truth are connected. I love in truth. John making it clear that the source and foundation of his love for them is their common bond in the truth. The love he's talking about here It's not a physical love like you and I would maybe think of, but a supernatural spiritual love, a a love founded on our mutual love for the Word of God and the God of the Word. Many write me encouraging letters, and often they'll sign them at the end, love in Christ, or in Christ's love. That's kind of what he's saying here. In the love of Christ, in the truth of the love of Christ, that's what binds us together. We both believe the truth, we both have the love of God. And that's the common bond between this old apostle and this family or congregation that was receiving his letter. And here's what he says. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be in us forever. Not only I, but also all those who have been known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. What do they have in common? Because of the truth. What do you and I have in common? It's the truth. We didn't join the same club. Amen? Any of you guys get like a funky hat with a fez or something when you join? We don't do that here. This is not the Elks Club. It's not the Kiwanis Club. What is that? And again, if you're in one of those clubs, God bless you. That's fine. But here's the point. That won't get you to heaven. Amen? Here's what the deal. We have the truth in common. And here's the deal. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He's writing to them, encouraging them, exhorting them, and starting off with our common ground, we've got Jesus in common. We have the truth in common. We have a common agape love. An agape love that can only come from Almighty God. 
I love that common bond. Because of the truth, in defense of the truth, as the elect lady is now surrounded by false teachers, those who compromise the truth are rejected altogether. It is into that very arena of false teaching and compromise that John boldly proclaims the truth. He goes, look, all these guys coming to your door, these people coming into your church, some of whom you might have been tempted to have stay at your house, they don't have the truth. And that sounds really harsh today when you would tell somebody that. You know, my coworkers are great, illustri- great sources of illustrations. They just really are. You know, most of you know I have a full-time job. And one of my coworkers, and I told him, I, I said, I use your name at church all the time. All the time. Mark. His name's Mark, and he is a Jewish atheist. Okay, then. And so when Ark and I talk, he said to me just this week, you know, you act like you know the truth. Yes. Absolutely. He goes, you know, I talk to other people. They think they know the truth. I said, that's exactly right. They think they know the truth. But we know, well, how do you know that you know that you know the truth? You know what? Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever spent time looking at the prophecy and the word of God? Guys, the word of God reveals the truth. And anybody who examines it with an open heart, you know what you call them? Christian. Amen? And, we, and I encourage him. And I tell him I'm praying for him. He gets mad every time I tell him. I'm going to pray for you. Don't have to pray for you. Don't have those people pray. I go, look, if you don't believe God exists, why do you care if I pray to a God that you don't believe is there? Why does that bother you? I said, you know why it bothers you? Because at least a part of you is convicted that there really is a God. Amen? For me to say it before, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one you hit. And the truth is that when you proclaim truth with boldness, the one who fights the most is usually the one convicted the most. Amen? So pray for Mark's salvation. I do all the time. I tell him I'm praying for him, and he gets mad, but that's okay. So here the apostle of love is linked to the truth. He's linking truth and love. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's because of the truth which abides in us. Here's the good news about the truth. The word abide there means to dwell or to inhabit. The truth isn't just something you know about. The truth dwells within you. Amen? You cannot be separated from the truth because we are indwelled by the truth. And he's saying to this woman or congregation hey we've got the truth in common yeah they're persecuting us yeah false teachers may come to your door don't be swayed by them they have nothing for you we have the truth already guys they have nothing for us we have everything for them we not because of who we are but because of who we serve because of who we know amen because of the truth i love how he continually links Now, you've heard me say it before, but we have some new people here today. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. That is why we must speak the truth in love. Amen? You can be right and be a jerk. Amen? Have you met people like that? They're right, but they're arrogant, and the way they say it, nobody wants to hear it. People don't want to hear the truth if it's delivered in a hateful way. Or an arrogant way. Or a self-righteous way. Needs to be delivered in a loving and a gracious way. Amen? But at the same time, if you love people, you can make the mistake of thinking you love them so much, let me just compromise the truth so that I can reach them. 
Well, you're going to reach them with a lie then. And what good is that? Amen? We've got entire church movements today that do that very thing. Let's bring in a big crowd. Let's offend no one. Let's not tell them the full truth. And then maybe they'll come back next week so we can not tell them the full truth again. I don't get it. Guys, here's the deal. Pastors are called to make disciples, not draw a crowd. Amen? And the only way you can do that is tell the truth. Why in the world would you want to go to a place that don't tell you the truth? What is that? I want to do that. I just watch a political debate or something, right? I don't want that. I want the word. The word. I want the truth. John is concerned that the letter's recipient may be tempted to compromise the truth in the name of love. Just invite them in. Maybe we'll reach them that way. And let the false teacher stay at your house for a couple weeks while they go around and minister to all the people in your neighborhood a lie. Don't let them stay at your house. Maybe they'll leave. That was his point. Don't be tempted to confuse love with truth. Make sure that you operate under both. The truth of God's word has been compromised in the name of tolerance and acceptance and churches have moved from proclaiming the truth of God's word with boldness to being open and affirming of sinful and rebellious lifestyles in the name of love. They're a loving church. I love you right into hell. Oh, I, I didn't see that coming. I just came for baby dedication. I had no idea. What's that about? Here's the reality, guys. Is it loving to let somebody be headed to destruction and say nothing? That's not loving. That's as hateful as it comes. Amen? He's saying, don't separate truth and love. Don't be confused that you think you're trying to love somebody, but you're promoting their false doctrine. Now, should we love every unbeliever on the planet? What's the answer? Absolutely. No matter what they're doing, what sin they're in, love them all. Because that's what the Lord does. That being said, we're not to promote false teaching. We're not to promote things that would draw people away from the Lord. So, which abides in us and will be with us forever. We don't just know about the truth, but he dwells in us. And aren't you glad that the truth doesn't change? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's a temptation today to think that because the culture has changed or because of a new opinion that's come down the pike or something that seems more relevant, that the message has changed. If the message has changed, then it was wrong to begin with. Amen? The message hasn't changed. We don't need to change it. Just need to speak it more, you know, loud, more loud and, and more bold. Make it more, not to make it more relevant to the culture. Instead, they need to look at man's latest, not look at his opinions and the modern culture in the light of truth of God's word. Guys, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to look at the culture and make God's word fit it. Why don't we look at God's word and make the culture fit that? Amen? God's word is the authority. Now, I'm not saying you can't do some things. Try to, you know, Paul said, let us be all things to all people that we might win some. I'm not saying we can't do some things to reach out to people. And you know what? I wouldn't even care if you had a petting zoo at church as long as when they got there, you preached the gospel. Amen? That's fine. You want to have fireworks? Great. Preach the gospel when they get there. But too often, we draw the crowd and then we're afraid that if we preach the truth, they might not come back. Just remember, what you win them with is what you win them to. Amen? You want to win people that love fireworks and petting zoos? Have one and don't preach the gospel. But if you want to win them 
to Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead, you need to preach the truth with boldness. Amen? And he's linking truth, and he's saying this truth will be with us forever. She's facing persecution. There's false teachers on the outside. She may be tempted, overwhelmed, this local congregation, this individual. And what, do they, what does he say? Look, you have the truth, and the truth will be with you forever. You have nothing to worry about, because you know Jesus Christ. It says in Isaiah 40, and it's quoted in 1 Peter 1, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? The word of the Lord is perfect. And you know what? The Lord of the word is perfect. And he endures forever. Opinions of men and lives of false teachers will come and go, but God's word, the truth, will endure forever, as will those in whom the truth dwells. Verse 3. So, so far, to the elect lady, he's exhorting her to to be in the truth and in love and to be encouraged that the truth will abide in her forever. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Two of his favorite words again. But notice how he greets her. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, the word there in Greek is charis. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. How many of us want grace? Do we need it every day or what? Grace is giving something you don't deserve. I want what I don't deserve. Amen? The next word is mercy. Mercy is not being given what you do deserve. You know, almost, well, we need both grace and mercy, don't we? Because we want what we don't deserve, and we certainly do not want what we do deserve. Amen? Have you ever noticed how for others we want justice, and for ourselves we want grace and mercy? You know, Lord, just bring justice on that guy. John, call fire down from heaven. That's before Pentecost. You know, bring fire down. Oh, for me, Lord, please forgive me. Hey, hey. Another chance. Help me out here. Sorry. Right? Brokenness. You know what, guys? Praise God for grace. Praise God for mercy. Don't ever say, well, I don't deserve that. Uh, wipe that from your vocabulary. Because when you say that, the response ought to be, so do you want what you deserve? Oh, no, yeah, no, not, not so much. I want Grace. And I want mercy, but he follows up grace and mercy, the word there, again, not being given what you deserve, with peace. The, peace, the word peace there is the Greek form of the word shalom. When Jews would see each other, they would say shalom, still do today, and it means peace. But guys, you cannot have peace until you've had grace and mercy. Amen? This is why you always see them in this order in the Bible. Because without grace and without mercy, there can be no peace. And here's the good news. The grace and the mercy comes from the Prince of Peace. Amen? And that's how you and I can walk around in this life and have a surety of salvation, not because of our good works, but because of His great grace and His incredible mercy. Guys, if your peace is based upon anything you've done, you will not have it for long. But if it's based on what he has done for you, you can walk in his grace and his mercy and in his peace. It says there, 
will be with you from God the Father. Will be with you. John is getting older. And as he gets older, he's getting more confident in the words he speaks on behalf of Almighty God. Often you'll see, may grace and peace be with you. Now he says, grace and peace will be with you at a time when people were being persecuted and false teachers were surrounding them and they needed a word of encouragement to know that yes, grace and mercy and peace will be with you. Can I say this to you this morning? Grace and mercy and peace will be with you right where you are if you will but surrender to Jesus Christ. Amen? Doesn't matter what the, you know, sin has consequences and the consequences may still remain. But even in the midst of that, he will give you grace and he will give you mercy and you will know peace. Peace is not the absence of war. It's a right standing with the prince of peace. The source of grace and mercy and peace. What is the source? Here's what it is. From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we get grace and peace? From the Father and the Son. Only from the Father and only from the Son do we get grace and peace. And then he says, the Son of the Father. Now, John is keeping in view the miraculous conception of Christ, and these are the truths that the Gnostics and the false teachers were teaching against. As he writes this letter, every word is divinely inspired by God. It's just his hand is the tool in the hands of his master. And as he writes, every word is ministering to the heart of the recipient who's in the midst of this mess going on around them. The trials of life, the persecution, the false teachers, and in the midst of all of that, to hear grace, mercy, and peace. And where did it come from? God the Father and from His Son. And that false teacher just came to your house and told you that that Jesus was not born into human flesh. Here it is. Yes, He was. And you've got to remember, who's speaking? Someone who had touched Jesus physically, John. Amen? Couldn't say, well, no, that didn't really happen. He was just a spirit. Not true. John was there. Who was the last of the apostles sitting at the foot of the cross? John. Who saw them take his body down? John. John was there. John saw it with his own eyes. And John is testifying to the truth in light of what the false teachers had been saying. Then he says again, in truth and Love. John can hardly write a verse without mentioning two of his favorite topics, truth and love. The grace, mercy, and peace God has for us are all given in truth and love. Apart from God's truth and love, we can never really have grace, mercy, and peace. Guys, again, the body of the text is speaking about the fact that it says truth five times in these three verses. And he's all about truth. But he makes sure to couple truth with love. Again, I know I'm beating this into the ground, but it's so important that people know how much we love them so they can receive the truth from us. We've all been guilty of falling short. I know I have. Amen? We can do things where we're not very loving and then people don't want to hear the truth. And there's times when because we want to be loved, we don't tell the truth. And Lord, help us not to fall in either one of those traps. Amen? And that's his exhortation here. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
even in the most profound truths delivered without love, become nothing more than an irritating noise. That's what the text says. You know, you can speak with the tongues of angels. You can speak great and awesome things, but if there's no love, the person hearing it, it's just an irritating noise. Dude, just turn that down. I don't want to hear it. Like grace and peace must go together, so too must truth and love. So first thing we saw, practice the truth. Walk in obedience to his commands. Truth and love abide in every believer. Second thing he says is walk in truth. Look at verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth as we receive commandment from the Father. I rejoice greatly. This is the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of a parent. What in the world does a pastor or a parent want more than to see their kids walking with God? Amen? Is there anything in the world has to offer that's better than that? Nothing. And he says, I greatly rejoice. The way that it's written there is, I mean, it's an overwhelming just heart just pouring out. When you get to the next uh, letter it says i have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth john is advancing in years his life is coming to an end and his focus is not on making a great name for himself as he did when he was young again arguing who was the greatest and asking to be seated at the right hand through his mom or his impetuous judgment what has happened to this guy as his life is coming to an end what is it that he's most concerned about seeing people th- that are walking with the lord that's the best To John, it doesn't get any better than that. He rejoices greatly. He's rejoice. The word means to be rejoice and be glad exceedingly beyond measure. The older we get physically, the more mature we become spiritually. The more our focus moves from temporal to the eternal, and the less we care about worldly accomplishments, and the more we're concerned about that which is eternal. John is rejoicing exceedingly. I have found some of your children walking in truth. The word your children, again, if it's an elect lady, it's some of the kids in her house. If it's a local congregation, it's some of the people in the church. And they're walking in the truth. Now here's what walking in the truth means. It doesn't mean meandering on and off the narrow path. It doesn't mean walking by the truth. It doesn't mean listening to the truth. It means a life surrendered to the truth. Walking in intimate daily fellowship with the Lord. Persisting in a Christian course. Not turning to the right or to the left. But passionately pursuing Christ and walking in obedience to his word. I have found some of your children walking in the truth. Word had gotten back to John. I don't know how. Be it by the words of other men, be it by a letter, if he ran into them himself. Some of your children are walking in the truth. I want you to notice something. John is rejoicing even though all of them are not walking. Now, would all of them walking be better? Of course. And guys, can I tell you, this is one of the, I think, the keys to lasting in ministry. Focus on the fruit. Amen? Be thankful for what God has done. He looks and he says, look, he could have said, some of your children are not walking in the truth. Right? Couldn't he have said that? He would have been focusing on those who failed, but instead he was praising God for those who were walking in the truth in the face of great and growing persecution. 
There were some walking in the truth, faithfully following after the true and living God. John focused on the some walking in the truth. And I believe this is indeed one of the keys to a, a successful and a long longevity ministry. You know, if you're working in children's ministry and you've been doing it for years, you can get discouraged sometimes. I was a youth pastor for 15 years on purpose. Here's a youth pastor. A guy draws the shortest straw. You get the teens. Oh, man. No, but it's a calling. And I remember for years, you know, sometimes you would study all night. You pour your heart out. You come in, and, you know, you, you're just trying to minister to these teenagers. They're like aliens sometimes. And they're trying to minister to them, and they're all sitting there like this. <laughs> Praise God they didn't have texting back then. I don't know what I would have done. But here's the point. You can get discouraged and you can think, I've been doing this all these years. And the truth is, in all those years, I was able to minister to hundreds of teens. And you know what? Some of them are in prison today. Some of them are dead. Some of them are are addicted to drugs. I mean, some of their lives are a disaster. And if I focus on that, I quit the ministry a long time ago. But here's the good news. Some of them are on fire for God. And I will get a phone call out of nowhere or an email on occasion from somebody who says, Pastor Dave, I found you on Facebook or I found you here. I just want you to know I was in your youth group in the late 1980s. I'm 35 now and I'm walking with the Lord. And I'm like, you're the guy who I thought never listened. Let's focus on the fruit. Amen. Let's be praising God that people have gotten saved and given their life to the Lord. If it's the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the prison ministry, the homeless, whatever ministry you're called to, you can be overwhelmed if you look and say, not everybody got saved. Be thankful for the ones who have. And it's worth it if only one did. Amen? This is his heart. Look, some of your kids are walking in the truth in the midst of great persecution and great trials and false teachers. And I met them and I'm rejoicing greatly because you know what? They're on fire for God. And they're not talking about the truth. They're walking in it. And it ministers to my heart. Our focus should be on the fruit the ministry has, has produced. I'm running out of time, but we, we did a few other things today. But it was interesting. I'll never forget one story that's just, I was always gripped my heart. I had a girl in my youth group named Summer. And Summer would come and sit in the back. And when she, this is in Southern California, and she was a full-on gangbanger. You know, she just, and she did not want to be there. Her parents drug her down there. And she was just too cool for school. And she would sit all the way in the very back and everything and the hat on, and just like that. And I remember, you know, thinking, why did her parents even make her? She sits back there, and she's just mad the whole time. People wouldn't even come up. You know, my leaders would try to go over and introduce themselves. You know, I don't know, never mind. You know, I mean, she just was rough. And I remember thinking, she's not hearing anything. And then some time went by, and she ran away from home, and she was only like 15 years old, and she was gone. Poor parents didn't know where she was. Months and months go by. Middle of the night, my phone rings. I pick up the phone. Pastor Dave, yeah, this is summer. And I had to think, summer? Seriously, couldn't be that summer. And she says, you know, you know, summer from youth group. And I said, she says, you know, you used to say something. You used to say it's a million steps away from God, it's only one step back. Is that true? I said, summer, absolutely that's true. She said, well, you know what? I'm living in a crack house in south central Los Angeles. I'm eight months pregnant. I'm in a phone booth right now. Will you come get me? I didn't think she heard one word. 
Let's focus on the fruit. She ended up being a leader in our youth group, on fire for God, baptized her in my swimming pool, and still serving the Lord today. Guys, let's focus on the fruit. Instead of saying, man, well, everybody didn't get saved, praise God for the ones who did. Some of the children are walking in the truth, amen? We should be encouraged by that. Last point. We're going to finish this up. Verse 5 and 6. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. He just spoke the truth, and what does he follow it up with? Love. Man, he's balanced that way, isn't he? He spoke the truth, and then he reminds them, oh, by the way, as you go out and share the truth, don't forget to love. As you go out there and you're speaking the truth to the rest of the kids, as you're speaking the truth to those around you, don't forget to love. Don't exclude the truth. Don't exclude the love. You need both. And notice he says to them, that which you've heard from the beginning, this was nothing new, but they needed to be reminded. Guys, we need to be reminded. Amen? Some of you say, why is the Bible so repetitive? Because we forget. Amen? And notice what he says, I plead with you. I plead. It means to interrogate, request, ask, beseech, desire. And he says, not, I'm not writing a new commandment. This is nothing new to you, but you need to be reminded again to love each other. Can we be reminded again as Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz to love each other? Amen? Can you go home and grab your directory and start praying for people? Can you be sensitive to leading of your Holy Spirit that when someone in here needs a hug, that God might use your arms to hug on them? There are people here right now going through some real tough weeks, real difficult times. And you know what? They're here today, and they should be able to be ministered to by us. Amen? And maybe next week or the week after, you're going to be the one going through a tough time, and they're going to minister to you. That's the body of Christ in action. Amen? And that's his exhortation here, is that we do this. I do not write a new commandment to you. You've heard this from the beginning. We need to love one another. And the word there for love is agape. It's not a selfish love. It's not what can you do for me love. It's what can I do for you love. How can I serve you? How can I minister to you? How can I care for you? John thirteen thirty five says this. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the enemy's biggest tools in tearing people away from the truth today is seeing Christians fighting with each other. Amen? Bickering, angry, bitter, being divisive, you know, all that stuff that can happen. Church against church. We're all one church. Can I encourage you? I'm really bummed that I, I was supposed to pray at this prayer thing today. I'm one of the biggest proponents for getting all the churches in the county together, and it just so happens I'm leaving for the senior pastor's conference right after church. And I'm really, but Pastor, you know, go. That's the body of Christ, amen? From all over Santa Cruz County, coming together to pray. That's good stuff. Be praying, because I still want to have an all-county baptism. Wouldn't you love to just fill the beach up with Christians? And just be baptizing people and have everybody go, what are they doing over there? Amen? Wouldn't that be great? Be praying for that, because that's something I have a heart to do. Last verse, verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Here's how he defines love. Love is not the, you know, the butterfly feeling in the stomach. Although that can accompany it, I guess, at some times, right? You know, it's not the smell of hot chocolate chip cookies on a, you know, a cold winter night or whatever. You know, this emotion-based thing that we can fall into. You know what love is? It's a choice. It's a choice. 
The definition of love is that we walk according to his commandments. Love is reflected in obedience. If we tell God we love him, and then we reject his word, and we disobey him, and we don't heed what his word says, and we go our own way, we are liars. Amen? Because if we love him, we will keep his commandments. This agape, that we walk according to his commandments. That's what agape is. It's revealed, not in just a feeling, but it's revealed in our behavior. And then he finally says this, this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This love is far more than a vague, empty emotion. It's a command that produces an action. You don't simply meditate on it, but you walk in it. You know what? Can we, as we pray this week, can we pray before our feet hit the floor in the morning? Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk in the center of your will today and to be used mightily for your kingdom. You think he'll answer that prayer? He'll answer it every single time because you can pray that in Jesus' name because it's according to his will. Lord, just take my life and use it and help me to obey. Guys, we can't obey without his help. Amen? It's not us bucking up. All right, I'm going to buck. I'm going to do better. How many of you tried that before? That's it. I'm determined. New Year's resolution. I'm not doing that again. That's it, right? January 3rd. Right? The truth is, the truth is that I, without him I can do what? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, amen? We need the strength of Christ so we might walk in the center of his will. This is love. So standing for the truth in love, obeying God's command to love without compromising the truth. We saw this morning the practicing of the truth, walking in obedience to his commands. First we saw that true, true, truth and love abide in every believer that we are to walk in truth and walk in love and read ahead for next week because next week we're going to see that not only do we walk in truth and walk in love, but God has called us to protect the truth. Amen? That we need to stand up for the truth because if we don't, who in the world is going to in the world we live in today? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the incredible grace you've poured out upon us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a calling upon our lives to speak the truth in love. To not only speak the truth in love, but to walk in the truth in love. To be an example to a lost and dying world of both your incredible love and the truth and the hope that lies within us. Father, I pray that we would not err on the side of being loving but denying the truth. Or be those who would preach the truth, but doing it in an unloving way. Lord, we need the power of your Holy Spirit if we're going to be effective to do anything for your kingdom. So this morning, we come humbly before you. And those who would agree with me, just raise your hand. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, even right now. Fill me to overflowing, Lord. Less of me and more of you, that I, my life might be used for your kingdom and for your glory. Help me, Lord, to walk in the truth, to be the man or the woman of God you've called me to be. Lord, I humbly lay my life at your feet. Be glorified in this marred and imperfect vessel. We thank you and we praise you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.